anyone who believes that Jesus' words are true and responds by trusting in Him for salvation has eternal life and will not face God's judgment. If you love people, tell them the truth about Jesus so they can be saved from their sins. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Students, if you'd open your Bibles to John 8, we are actually finally going to finish this chapter after many weeks. You know, once you start getting in John, it gets deeper and deeper, and I feel like an ant on top of the Pacific Ocean. You know, it's just an incredible, God's Word is so rich, so we're going to look forward to that today. As you know, we've been in the study of the Gospel of John for a number of months now. He wrote the Gospel more than 50 years after the resurrection of Jesus and a number of decades after Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written. So the Synoptic Gospels were written some decades before John was written. And he tells us his purpose in writing the Gospel is to demonstrate and prove the deity of Christ. What John did is he chose seven signs or seven miracles out of the hundreds of miracles that Jesus did. John just chose seven and used them to illustrate uh, the deity of Christ through those miracles. And John furthermore tells us that, once someone is convinced that Jesus is, in fact, God, he wants to persuade them to place their faith in Jesus Christ by believing that he paid the penalty for their sins so they can have eternal life and live forever with God in heaven. So that's the point of the gospel. At this point, near the end of chapter 8, Jesus has been ministering publicly in Israel for about two and a half years. He's about six months away from his date with the cross, and initially the crowds follow Jesus, in great numbers because they were attracted to his miracles. Free food, healings, they loved the spectacular power over nature, the power over demons, and they wanted a political, um, welfare, uh, military messiah who would feed them and free them. Free them from Rome, and free food, of course, is always an enormously good thing. However, once Jesus made it clear that his primary purpose wasn't to free them from Rome and cater to their selfish desires, his primary purpose was to save them from their sins. At that point in time, a pretty good chunk of the crowds just deserted them in mass. Uh, the Jewish religious leaders have opposed Jesus from the very beginning, and the opposition to him has been growing and increasing. Ever since Jesus cleansed the temple, which he did within a couple of months after he first came on the scene, uh, they have been attacking him. It's utterly interesting, if you read John chapter 8, the chapter we're in now, there are 10 separate assaults and verbal attacks on Jesus in one chapter by the Jewish religious leaders against him. It's a nonstop barrage of conflict and animosity and plots to kill him. What is interesting, when you listen to our Lord's response to them, it's obvious he's not soft-pedaling it. It's obvious he's not trying to play down the differences. It's obvious he's not appeasing their hatred. It seems when you read this chapter, read it in toto, he's escalating the conflict with them. And the differences could not be stark. God in heaven is the father of Jesus, and Satan, who is destined for the lake of fire, is the father of the scribes and Pharisees. Anytime John uses the words, the Jews, He's not talking about the nation at large. He's talking about the Jewish religious leaders, largely the Sanhedrin, scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. So he's talking about a relatively small group of people, the Sadducees and Pharisees. Pharisees were only 6,000 people. So generally, he's not talking about the nation, the common people for the most part. These attacks are coming from the Jewish religious leaders. And the reason they refuse to believe in Jesus is because they belong to Satan's family. Satan is their father, and they share Satan's DNA. Now, if you don't think that dumped gas on the fire between Jesus and them, I mean, that's like putting nitro and then shaking it and dropping it. You're going to get some explosions. Satan, of course, is always recruiting people to, to join him in opposing God. What is utterly, profoundly disturbing 
is that the primary opposition to Jesus comes from the religious leaders who are supposed to represent God to the people. That is astonishing. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And these religious leaders are so deceived by Satan, they don't even know they're lost. They refuse to believe, and as a result, they're now incapable of believing. Jesus told them in verse 43, he said, you cannot hear my words. You are incapable of hearing my words. Because they chose not to believe so many times, they now lost the ability to believe. They have believed Satan's lies. Of course, Satan is a very uh, competent liar. He's the father of lies. And he's the one who successfully deceived Eve in the beginning into rebelling against God. And as a result of that, in essence, he murdered the entire race. Death came to the human race because Satan perceived, deceived Eve into eating the apple. Satanic deception, by the way, is alive and well today, and it causes people to believe lies and reject the truth. What's astonishing is these scribes and Pharisees absolutely believe that they are following God, and they believe Jesus, who is eternal God, is possessed by a demon. Now that is a lack of discernment, to call the holiest of all beings possessed by a demon. They cannot discern the difference between holiness and wickedness. Read verse 48. Let's begin. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Here's the principle. Anyone who believes that Jesus' words are true and responds by trusting in him for salvation has eternal life and will not face God's judgment. Anyone who believes that Jesus' words are true and responds by trusting in him for salvation has eternal life and will not face God's judgment. So this is a pretty, um, the Jewish response to Jesus' claim is fairly uh, common. They couldn't refute his logical arguments. They couldn't refute him by logical explanation, so they attack his person. They start calling him names, right? They call him a Samaritan. They say he's possessed by a demon. Now, we don't really understand the implications of what it means to call somebody a Samaritan. Uh, let me give you a little historical background. The Jews have been in conflict with the Samaritans for over 700 years. Northern Israel was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., about 750 years before this time, and they were exiled and scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire because God had said, I'm going to take you out of the land because you continue to disobey me. So they were exiled into throughout the Assyrian Empire. Assyria then, as their practice was, brought pagan foreign peoples into the land of Israel and scattered them among the people that were left. There were a few people left in the northern kingdom, Assyria didn't take all of them, and the, the Israelites that were left intermarried with these pagan people that Assyrians brought into the land. They not only intermarried with them, they combined their religious systems. So you have the Judaism, the worship of Yahweh, the Mosaic law now being combined by all sorts of fertility cults and foreign pagan religious practices. That's called synchronism, which is an unholy marriage uh, between religious systems. So the southern kingdom of Judah gets taken into slavery in Babylon, uh, 586 B.C. And when they come back after 70 years, they run into this mixed multitude, if you will, and they call them the Samaritans because Samaria is the capital city of that region. They, the southern kingdom, regarded the Samaritans as biological half-breeds. They weren't pure Jews because they'd intermarried with Gentiles and spiritual heretics since they had intermarried uh, not only physically but also their religious systems. They had adopted pagan religious practices. Now, the hatred on both sides was extremely bitter, and Samaritans and Jews avoided each other like the plague. Now, Samaria is between southern Israel, which is called Judea, and northern Israel, which is called Galilee. 
many Jews refused to travel straight north from Galilee, I mean from Judea to Galilee, or straight south. They would go east across the Jordan River and travel north or south into the Israeli territory because they refused to set foot into the country of Samaria. Jesus, however, came to save what? The world. And as you recall in John 4, he traveled to Samaria and he met a Samaritan woman by the well and the entire village that she was a part of received Christ at that point in time. What's interesting is in a little sidebar, John says, quote, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Now that is an understatement. They hated each other with a passion. So calling a Jew a Samaritan is the most insulting racial epithet you could possibly call a Jew. And they go beyond that. They not only call Jesus a Samaritan, they accuse him of being demon-possessed. What they're saying is that the Son of God is empowered and controlled by the power of Satan and his demonic host. They're calling the holiest of all persons, the Lord Jesus Christ, the most evil of all persons, Satan. You can see how deceived and how angry and how rebellious they are against God. Telling someone that they had a demon was like telling them they were nuts, crazy, mad, insane, unclean, evil, perverted. You fill in the blanks, right? It was an epithet of huge proportions. Now, it's indicated when you read this that apparently the Jews have been calling him this for some months. This is a long-standing accusation. Anytime he would say something, well, you're a demon, you're a Samaritan, right? So we don't need to listen to you. The Jewish religious leaders are willfully deceived. They want to believe Satan's lies, despite the evidence. They belong to Satan, and therefore they obey Satan and oppose God. And a few verses earlier in this last week, we looked at Jesus, called him out on that, and said, you are of your father the devil. You behave like the devil because you belong to the devil, right? And you know people like that in our culture today. They behave like the devil because they belong to the devil. Out of the mouth comes what? What's in the heart. So when people say, well, I don't know how that came out of me. Because it was in you. The words that fall out of your mouth were in you before they come out of your mouth, right? And what you speak and how you respond and how you behave reveals who you are and whose you are, who you belong to. Now, Jesus does not respond with anger. He speaks rational truth to them. He says, I am honoring my Father in heaven by obeying him. By the way, it's impossible to honor God and be possessed by a demon at the same time, right? Because demon-possessed people don't honor God. They honor Satan. Jesus said, I'm honoring my father. It's logically impossible for me to be possessed by a demon. And he says, I didn't come to earth to promote myself, to give myself glory. I came to earth to give glory to my father. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't come here to get glory. When he came to earth, he gave up glory. He gave up the worship of heaven to come to a cesspool called sinful planet earth, right? And he came to give up the glory of heaven for the humiliation of the cross. Now the Father's goal, Heavenly Father's goal, is to glorify Jesus, his Son. He wants men and women to glorify Jesus, which these religious leaders are not doing. They refuse to believe in Jesus, and they refuse to believe in his Father, and so they were dishonoring him. What's interesting is that the scribes and Pharisees claim to know God. They claim to know Yahweh. They claim to know the God of Israel, and yet they were trying to kill the Son of Yahweh. By the way, if you want God to think well of you, treat his son well. How would you feel about someone who says, you know, I really like you, but I want to kill your son? I, you know, it probably wouldn't endear you very much to that person, right? If you love, if you hate my son, you hate me, right? So this attack on Jesus was an attack on God, whom they claimed to know and to honor. And Jesus said, you think you're judging me? My Father's judging you for not glorifying me. And the truth is, these scribes and Pharisees were not seeking God's glory, they were seeking their glory. They loved being the center of attention, they loved the veneration of the crowds. They had a whole man-made system of rituals and ceremonies that were designed to what? Exalt themselves. So they lived for the praise of man, not the praise of God. 
And they hated Jesus because he called them out and said, you are hypocrites. If you want to wake up some night and, and uh, you really want to hear some condemnation, read Matthew 23. Jesus takes on the scribes and Pharisees and gives them seven woes, and it will curl your hair. This is the Son of God saying these things to people. Now, Jesus says, I was sent from heaven by my Father, and I don't do anything or say anything other than what God taught me, right? And I've already told you that if you do not believe that I am God's Messiah, you're going to die in your sins. What is so revealing about the grace of God that despite these attacks, despite being called names, despite being cursed, he offers them a gracious invitation for salvation. He says, truly, truly, which means surely, surely. When you, anytime you see truly, truly, verily, verily in the old KJV, it means pay attention, this is really important. He says, you can underline this in your Bible, this is an invitation. If anyone keeps my word... He, she will never see death. Now, my word, he's talking about the totality of everything Jesus said. The totality of everything Jesus did. It's the sum of his entire message. It's everything Jesus said about himself. It's about his Father. It's about heaven. It's about eternal life. It's about salvation. It's about faith. Right? It's everything in the Bible. And the word keep, he says, if you keep my word, the word keep refers to safeguarding, protecting a very precious treasure. It has the idea of, of valuing something, holding it with great diligence and care. It's cherishing. Cherishing is the, is the picture of warming something. Uh, have you ever, ever held a newborn infant, right? You carry that newborn infant next to your heart, right? Because you cherish that new life. You protect that new life. If you fall down, you fall down on your back so this baby is protected. That's the idea of keeping God's word, cherishing it, valuing it, protecting it, uh, obeying it, trusting it. So keeping God's word in this context means three things. One, accepting it as truth. Number two, trusting in it. And number three, obeying it. See, God's word is absolute truth. God's word is a timeless treasure. Our faith in Christ is built on what? The foundational truth that God exists and he has spoken through his word. Whatever God's word said is truth. Jesus said, your word is truth, right? And truth is the only trustworthy foundation for life. When you build your life on the rock of God's word, you will never be shaken. There's an old hymn tune that says what? On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, quicksand. That's really true. Jesus said in Matthew 24, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. So keeping God's word in this context means, number one, accepting it as absolute truth. Secondly, trusting it completely. And thirdly, doing what it says. That's the O word, obedience. Have you ever noticed that a lot of life comes down to following, obeying what God says? You know, truth does you no good if you don't do what it says. I mean, no good. You know, suppose you're driving a car, you're a car, and you're going down a road, and you see a sign that says, sharp curve ahead, speed limit 25 miles an hour. And you hit that curve at 65. Chances are, there's going to be a bad outcome. I don't know if you're going to roll the car, go into the road. But knowing that the speed limit was 25 did you no good because you didn't follow what you knew. Right? So knowing the truth is no good if you don't do the truth. And Jesus tells them in verse 55, he says, I do know my Father, and I can prove I know my Father because I keep his word. So Jesus kept his Father's words. He valued his Father's word. He treasured his Father's words. He obeyed his Father's word. He trusted his Father's word. And he says, you do the same. If you keep my word, if you treasure it, trust it, obey it, believe in it, rest your life on it, you will never see death. And the, the literally the Greek here is death he will not see. Very emphatic. Death he will not see. And the word see here doesn't refer to a, a glance. 
It refers to a gaze. It refers to experience. When, you, when he's talking about seeing something, he's looking at staring at it. A steady, long, studied gaze at something until you experience it thoroughly. Now, the truth is, before Christ, what did we see? Death. That's all we see before Christ, because every sinner, every person is born, is what? Born in sin, and their physical destiny is death in the grave, and their spiritual destiny is separation from God in hell. Have you ever noticed that most people would rather do anything than think about death? And they would rather talk about anything than talk about death. If you want to shut down a conversation real quick, talk about dying. People will panic. I mean, they'll dehydrate so fast and make your head swim. They do not want to deal with that because Scripture says the fear of death enslaves people, right? However, when Jesus came to earth in human flesh, died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, he disarmed Satan. Why is that important? Because Satan is the one who brought death into the world. Hebrews 2.14 says, therefore, I'm going to walk you through this. Since the children share in flesh and blood, that's you and I, he, Christ himself, likewise also partook of the same. Jesus became flesh and blood, like us, and came to earth, that through death on the cross, he, Christ, might render powerless, might disarm him who had the power of death, Satan. So on the cross, Satan was defeated and death was defeated so that he might free those, you and I, who fear death, were kept in slavery all our lives. People who know Christ as Savior will never see death. They will never experience death, right? Because God, through Christ, rendered Satan powerless and freed us from the power of sin and death. It literally says, you won't see death, your backs will be turned to death. And you will be turned to life through Christ. We will experience God's life for all eternity. Now the death Jesus is talking about here is not the physical death. He's talking about spiritual death, the second death. Even people that follow Christ experience physical death. We're all going to die physically. Spiritual death refers to separation from God for all eternity, right? And if you want to die spiritually, Jesus said, I can tell you how to do that. You can die in your sins if you refuse to repent from your sins and you refuse to seek my forgiveness by placing your faith in me for paying the penalty for your sin. Then you will die in your sin. But that's optional. You don't have to die in your sin. You can repent from your sin and be forgiven from it. That's why Jesus Christ came. And then you will turn your back on death and you will face only eternal life with Christ forever in heaven. Jesus said to Lazarus' sister Martha in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Live eternally even if he dies physically. Got it? Live forever with Jesus in heaven, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. They will never experience separation from God. The instant you trust Christ to forgive your sins, God the Father declares you not guilty. He's the judge. He bangs his gavel and says, not guilty, because your sin has been paid by Jesus Christ. And that instantly at the same time, God gives you supernatural life, his life in you, because the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, comes and lives in you immediately at the very moment of salvation. John 5, 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has now, in the present instant, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Instantly. Instantly. Jesus reconciled our broken relationship with God when he paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. And now even though our body will be separated from our spirit, that's called physical death, our spirit will never be separated from Jesus Christ, never be separated from God. We will never experience spiritual death. Our relationship with God will never be broken. Our fellowship will never end. And you have that eternal life right now in the present. 
people often think, well, eternal life, I've got to die to experience it. No, God the Holy Spirit lives in you now. You have the life of God in you now. Even though you still live on a broken planet, God lives in you. And we should be living like God lives in us, right? So physical death is not the end of the story. If you keep Jesus' word, when your spirit leaves your body, your body goes in the ground, but your spirit goes to live with God instantly. To be absent from the body is what? To be home with the Lord. So just as Lazarus was resurrected, just as Jesus was resurrected, our bodies will also be resurrected from the grave to live forever with God in heaven. That's why we who know Christ, we sorrow when we lose the loved one, but we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. Christians never say goodbye. Christians always say, until we meet again. Until we meet again. And we will meet again, because Jesus Christ has promised it, right? Verse 52. How do the Jews respond to this invitation? You would be amazed. They said, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets died also, and you say, quote, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death, unquote. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. You think there's some truth-telling going on? Yeah, yeah. Here's the principle. Since Jesus' claim to be God is authenticated by his heavenly Father, those who oppose Jesus oppose God. Since Jesus' claim to be God is authenticated by his heavenly Father, those who oppose Jesus oppose God. So the Jews respond to his invitation and say, we knew you were nuts, we knew you were possessed by a demon. After all, Abraham, the friend of God, the father of our nation, he died, and all the Old Testament prophets, the giants of the faith, also died. You're not only claiming to be greater than the Old Testament saints, you're claiming to have power over death. You're claiming to be God. Well, yes, that's exactly what he's claiming to be. Now, they believe that he is simply a man who's making himself out to be God. In other words, he's making false claims. Who would claim to conquer death except somebody who's evil and insane? And some come to you today and says, you know, I've got the solution. I've got the fountain of youth, man. You will never die. You know, it's, it's really this pharmaceutical concoction called snake oil. If you take this stuff, you will never die. And you would say, I think you're evil because you're lying, or, and you're crazy because you're obviously doing something that is impossible. Everybody dies. Well, that's exactly what they're saying. They think Jesus is talking about physical death. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. He's talking about being separated from God. He's not saying if you follow love, treasure, and obey my word, you're never physically going to die. Everyone physically dies. He's talking about eternal life with God. He's talking about separation from God for all eternity. How does Jesus respond to this claim? He says, look, my behavior is not designed to bring glory to myself. My claim to deity does not rest on my own verbal claims. I'm not seeking my own glory. My Father in heaven is the one who authenticates my claim to deity. How does God the Father authenticate that Jesus is God? Well, number one, look at all the supernatural miracles he gave Jesus to do and empowered to do. There were literally thousands of miracles done over this three years. By the time the ministry of Jesus ended, he had pretty well banished disease in both Galilee and Judea. I mean, John says, if you wrote down all the miracles Jesus did, he said there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain them all, right? If you track the miracles, there's only 35 listed, but the implication is when you see he had multitudes of people waiting all night long, and he healed and healed and healed and healed. And then you go to the next town. People wait all night long, healed and healed and healed. So he had an enormous number of supernatural miracles that his father empowered him to do. The Old Testament has over 700 prophecies related to the 
uh, Messiah. He fulfilled those. That's documentation authenticating his deity. He had spoken words from heaven. The Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased at his baptism. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him at the transfiguration. The Father talking from heaven authenticated his ministry. It's interesting that Jesus calls God what? My Father. There's a familial intimacy here, and the Jews call him God. There's not an intimacy between the Father and the Jews. They don't really know him. And Jesus says, you don't know him. And if you claim to know him, you're lying. Right? Now, our culture is full of people who claim to know God. Right? You've talked to them. You know, you know they, they, talk, they know God because they call him names like the man upstairs and all this other foolish and evil things. They don't know him. It's one thing for you not to know God. It's an entirely different thing for God to say, I don't know you, right? Matthew 7, 21, Jesus is saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, judgment day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, by the way, I never knew you doesn't mean that Jesus is not omniscient. He's God. He knows all things. When Jesus says, I don't know you, he says, you don't have a saving relationship with me. You don't have a, a by faith salvation relationship with me. You have done many works in my name that exalt yourself, but you have never humbled yourself and placed your faith in me to forgive your sins. You say you know me, but you practice lawlessness. Would you say we live in a culture that is by and large lawless? Is it increasingly lawless? You would be persuaded on the basis of behavior that we live in a culture that does not know God, does not have a by-faith relationship. That's really good news. You have a marvelous mission field, right? They need the gospel. They need to be saved. Their behavior tells you that they are lost, very lost. Go back to verse 55. Jesus said, you have not come to know him. But I know him, talking about Heavenly Father, and if I say I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Here's the principle. If you love people, tell them the truth about Jesus so they can be saved from their sins. If you love people, tell them the truth about Jesus so they can be saved from their sins. And you say, why would Jesus stir the pot? Why did he just get so in their face? Because he loves them. He wants them to repent. He wants them to be saved. The truth of it is, if you believe Satan's lie, you will spend eternity in hell. It's merciful to tell someone the truth if you love them. I mean, suppose you have a loved one who is uh, desperately sick. And you have the medicine that they need in order to save their life. But they refuse to take it. What would you do? Would you tell him about it? Would you beg him to take it? Would you drag him to a doctor who could persuade him to take it? Would you throw him on the floor and pour it down their throat? Or would you just walk away and say, eh, it's your funeral? What would you do? That's us today. We have the only solution to death, and everyone's going to die. See, Jesus is omniscient. He's God. He knows they don't have a relationship with his heavenly Father, and you know they don't because you can look at their behavior. People that claim to have a relationship with God don't try and kill God's son. Just saying. So instead of letting them believe the lie that they're really allied with God, that they really know God, he tells them the truth because if he doesn't, they're going to go to hell. He gives them the opportunity to repent. He says, I do not know you. You do not know my father. You do not belong to me. You belong to your father, the devil. You can't hear my words because you're not 
one of my sheep. John 10, 40, 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. Who do sheep follow? Their shepherd. If you refuse to follow Jesus, it's real simple. You're not one of his sheep. You don't know him, and you do not have eternal life. Now, in contrast to these religious leaders, Jesus really does know God. He was sent from heaven by his Father. He said, if I claim not to know God, I would be as big a liar as you are who claim to know God. And I know God, and I can prove to you I know God because I keep his word. Right? If you want to demonstrate that you have a relationship with God, it's real simple. Do what he says. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Obedience is a demonstration of love. When you're raising children, and they say, Mom, Dad, I love you, I love you, and then they go out and disobey you, what do you believe? You believe the behavior, right? See, you're lying through your teeth. You don't love me. If you love me, you what? Do what I say. Verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Here's the principle. Jesus is eternal God who came to flesh in human form, came to earth. Jesus is eternal God who came to, earth, came to earth in human form. Now, Jesus called Abraham the father of the Jews, but the Jews were not living like Abraham lived. Abraham exulted about the promises of the coming Messiah, but the Jewish religious leaders reject their Messiah when he came. And Jesus says, Abraham saw my day. My day is not a single day. It has to do with the whole period of redemptive history, Christ's life on earth, when he ministered, when he brought the gospel, and the redemption he did on the cross. So that day refers to the entire earthly ministry at that point. It's interesting to ask, wonder what Abraham saw by faith that caused him to rejoice with great joy. Well, remember in Genesis 12, God called Abraham out of the earth of the Chaldees, an idol-worshipping pagan society, and he said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a father of a great number of descendants, and the nation that follows you, I'm going to bless the entire world through. Well, the ultimate culmination of that blessing was what? His major descendant was Messiah, Jesus Christ, born of the tribe of Judah, of the nation of Israel, a descendant of Abraham, to fulfill the promise to bless the entire world by giving them salvation. Hebrews says this about Abraham and all the other Old Testament saints. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. See, the Old Testament scriptures promise a coming Messiah. But nobody who lived in the Old Testament lived long enough to see the Messiah come. So they were all saved, just like we are, by faith except their faith was looking forward to the promise of a Messiah. Our faith is looking back at the reality of a Messiah that's already come. Amen. It's rather interesting. Who has more faith? They believe the promises of God before they were realized. We believe the historical promises of God that were already realized when Christ came and died for our sins, right? But they believed what God promised was certainly going to come to pass, and that's how Abraham saw. Abraham saw Messiah's day by faith because of the promise of God, and it says he believed God's promise, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Faith was counted to him as righteousness. And, of course, the Jews respond to Jesus with disbelief. They are very stuck in time, in space, in physical matters. They have no spiritual insight at all because they're following their father, the devil, they say, you claim that Abraham saw your day. And the Jews ask him, how can you claim that you've seen Abraham? 
You're not even 50 years old yet, and he died more than 2,000 years before you were born. How is it possible that you say you've seen Abraham, Abraham has seen your day? You know, Jesus was about age 33 at this point in time. He wasn't even old enough to be considered one of the elders in Israel. At that point, you had to be probably somewhere close to 50 or more than that. So he was a young man, 33, middle age at that point in time. And then Jesus explains how that's possible. How is it possible that Abraham could see his day? He says, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, I am is the personal covenant name of God. Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, a tetragrammatron. When Moses, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, when Moses came to God, God said, you're going to go lead the children of Israel out of slavery. Moses said, who will I tell him has sent me? What is his name? Who's the God? He says, I am the one who is. Not I am the one who was, not I am the one who shall be. I am the one who is. And this refers to God's independent self-existence. The creation Everything in the universe is dependent every moment upon the Creator for its existence and for its function. Our next heartbeat is dependent on God saying, I'm going to give you another heartbeat. You're breathing His air. His air. The lungs that breathe His air are His lungs. Yes? There is nothing that we do that is independent of God. Everything in the creation is utterly dependent on God. God, when he says, I am the one who is, he says, I am dependent on nobody but me. And I am the only entity ever who is only dependent on me. So when Jesus says, I am, he claims to be God. Creator God, eternal God, the Lord of all things. And of course, the Apostle John began his gospel with that very phrase, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The word logos means Word. It's referring to Christ. Now, since Christ eternally exists, it means he has no beginning and he has no end. Abraham, like everything finite, had a birth date and he had a death date. You and I have the same thing. Our grandchildren will probably show up someday and look at our gravestone and they say, well, they had a birth date and they had a date they left here. And that's true for every single one of us. Now, we know the birth date. Long time ago. We don't know the departure date. But the departure date is already on God's calendar, yes? Psalm 139, he knows that. It's a God-ordained death date. By the way, this entire fallen creation, the entire universe had a birth date. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Came into existence by the one who always exists. And this creation, sin fallen, has a death date. Peter says it's going to be consumed with fire. So it, there is a time limitation on the space-time universe. It's destined for the graveyard. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming in Revelation 20.21. Other than, other than creator God... Everything exists within the limitations of space and time. Jesus Christ, creator, dwells outside space and time because he created space and time. So the 2,000 years between Abraham's life on earth and Jesus' human life on earth is irrelevant because Jesus always exists. Always. There was never a time when he does not exist. Jesus was alive before Abraham was created and he was alive when Abraham died. What is so interesting, and I just realized that this week, the Holy Spirit, I'm not smart enough to figure this out, it's the Holy Spirit that does. But Genesis 18 records that Jesus came to earth, pre-incarnate Christ, theophany, and Abraham served him a meal with two angels. Christ came from heaven to check out Sodom and Gomorrah and say, let's find out if it's as bad as what we've heard. He's using human terms here, God knows everything. Jesus Christ had a meal, and Abraham served him the meal. So in fact, Jewish religious leaders, he did see him face to face, in human form. So then, <laughs> That's not the point. That's a sidebar. But if Jesus simply wanted to communicate that he existed before Abraham's time, he'd have said, before Abraham was, 
I was. Right? I just existed before he did, but I had a beginning. He doesn't say that. He says, I am. I have no beginning. I have no end. Jesus has eternal being. God dwells outside space and time. I know it's hard for our brains to realize, but for God, past, present, and future are all the same. All the same. It means something very practical. When God makes a promise that to you is in the future, it's not in the future to him. Every promise that God has written in the Bible, he treats as completed fact now. Because he has no future and no past. He exists in the eternal present. Whenever you read a promise of God in the Bible, count it done as completed. You may not experience it in time yet, but from God's perspective, it's done. Because the word of the Lord will stand forever. 2 Peter 3.8 says, But do not this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. See, God doesn't operate on our calendar. No, he operates on his calendar. We struggle with this. God makes a promise in the Bible, and we go, I don't see it. You know, what's going on? Is this going to happen? And you ask God for something, and a whole week passes, and you think, you know, I think his hurrying aid's turned off. I think he's on vacation, right? I mean, he should respond within a week, preferably by this afternoon, right? What does he say? Well, one day with the Lord's like a thousand years. He doesn't live within the constraints of space and time. But he treats his promises as if they're already done. And he says, you trust my word by faith. I will accomplish what I know is best in your life when I know that it's best. Now, the Jews believed that Jesus was a man and his claim to deity was blasphemy. Blasphemy, by the way, means to directly and deliberately, it's not an accident, blasphemy is direct and deliberate, speak with contempt or behave defiantly irreverent toward God. For a mere man to make themselves equal with God was blasphemy because it reduced God to human level and elevated man to God's level. So claiming to be God was blasphemy. It's treating what's holy as common, and the penalty in Israel for blasphemy is capital punishment. By stoning. Not with weed, with rocks, right? Leviticus 24, 16. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall surely stone him. So when Jesus says, I am, he's claiming to be God, and they knew it. And they were so furious that they picked up stones to throw at him then and there. The fact that loose stones were available inside the temple may indicate that the temple construction was not yet finished. As a matter of fact, this is probably 32, 33 A.D. In fact, the temple was not completed until 63 A.D. You know when it was destroyed by the Romans? 70 A.D. They had seven years when it was completed before it was torn down by the Romans. Now, if they believed that Christ was a blasphemer, the proper thing to do was what? Due process of law, have a trial, get a judge. The Sanhedrin would be the judge bring charges, have defense. Well, they didn't bother with that. They tried to execute him on the spot, but they were unsuccessful. It says Jesus hid himself. The tense of that word means he was hidden by God. We don't know how, but it wasn't his time to go to the cross, and God divinely prevented the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes from executing him by stoning, and it says he went out of the temple. Symbolically, Jesus abandons the temple and his own people who rejected him, and he goes out to all of humanity. And we're going to see that next week. We talk about the blind man in chapter 9. And we've talked about this before. When Jesus abandons you to have your own way, that's not mercy, that's judgment. When God says, okay, Burger King, have it your way, that is a curse. That is judgment because he's no longer going to call you to repent. Romans 1. He says, I'm abandoning you to have your own way. 
and the die had been cast. The Jewish religious leaders had irrevocably, tragically, signed their own death warrant spiritually when they refused to respond to the gospel. It appears, it's not true, but it increasingly appears that that's what our world's experiencing today. That God says, have it your way. If you refuse to let me be a part of your school system, if you refuse to let me be part of your civic life, if you refuse to tell people they should obey the Ten Commandments, if you refuse to enforce the law, then try lawlessness. Have it your way. That is judgment. We need to be praying for our culture. If you've ever doubted that the world needs the gospel of Jesus Christ, it doesn't take a rocket scientist when you look at the data about the lostness of the world. And Jesus came to what? Seek and to say the lost. And as Pastor Andrew said this morning, we have the privilege and the responsibility to carry that life-giving message to lost and dying world. Okay, let's summarize, then Tom will come up for us and do prayer and praise. Here's point one. Anyone who believes that Jesus' words are true and responds by trusting him for salvation has eternal life and will not face God's judgment. Number two, since Jesus claimed to be God is authenticated by his heavenly Father, those who oppose Jesus oppose God. You can't say, I love God, I know God, I don't believe in Jesus. No one comes to the Father but through Christ. Period. Thirdly, if you love people, tell them the truth about Jesus so they can be saved from their sins and experience eternal life. Lastly, and this is John's primary point, Jesus is eternal God who came to earth in human flesh. And we're going to be seeing more and more evidence of that in the coming weeks. Thank you for your attention. Um, you know, when the Lord speaks, he gives his spirit to illuminate, but it's rich. This takes some time to digest, so I'm going to encourage you to be thinking and praying through that this week. And Lord willing, we'll see you next week. Love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.